You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Today we are in Matthew chapter 9 where we continue to see the ministry and life and kingdom of the King, that is Jesus Christ, unfolding throughout Gospels Matthew. And we pick it up with first a story about a paralyzed man. And this is one of the classic stories in the New Testament. And it says in verse 1 that getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city in verse 1. Now, when it speaks of his own city there in verse 1, this is a reference to the city of Capernaum, where Jesus conducted much ministry. Of course, this isn't the city that he grew up in. It's not Nazareth. It's not the city that he was born in, Bethlehem. But this was sort of the adopted city of Christ, a place that he had done much ministry and would do much ministry. And so he goes to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And of course, as Jesus had gone into Capernaum before and had healed many sick people and cast out many demons, he had come to acquire quite a reputation in that city. And so you can only imagine the mood within the city as people from all throughout that region would attempt to find as many sick, paralyzed, demon-possessed, or afflicted people as possible in order to bring them to Christ, in order to, at the very least, be able to say that they witnessed the miraculous. At best, these people are friends or relatives of this paralyzed man who are bringing them to Christ, but at the very least, they're simply a group of people who want to see Christ perform a miracle. And so they bring this man to Jesus They're lying on his bed. And and it says there in verse 2, a very interesting thing. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a fascinating account here in Matthew because of, in one sense, because of what Matthew refuses to record. It's not really important to the details that Matthew is trying to communicate. But the other Gospels tell us that when these people arrived to bring this man to Christ, the house that Jesus was teaching in was so full that these men had to take the paralyzed man to the roof of the house, tear open the earthen sod roof of the home, and lower the man down to Christ. And so... You know, all of that said, it says here in verse 2, that Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic. And I find it, of course, fascinating that Jesus saw the faith of the people who brought this paralyzed person to Christ. And I think that their faith was seen by Jesus, not because he was necessarily looking into their hearts and seeing something that no one else could see. He was watching faith in action as they brought this man to Christ. And throughout this chapter, we're going to see this theme of faith continue to unfold 
in Matthew's gospel. But it's interesting for us to see here that their faith was connected to their actions. And the Lord desires for us to be a people who move out in faith and trust in God. And so Jesus said to this paralyzed man, when he saw their faith, not the faith of the man, but the faith of the people who brought the man, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, this would have been for many people an anticlimactic word. Here's a paralyzed man there before Jesus, a hush comes over the crowd. You're expecting to see a man who previously could not walk, miraculously healed, and be able to walk. And here Jesus speaks to this man and says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, obviously, this speaks to us of the paramount importance of dealing with the problem of sin. And I find oftentimes in a prayer meeting that one of the things that we wrestle the most with are the inconsequential or the less important in priority. You know, of course, here this man's health was of incredible importance to him and to the people that loved him and the people that cared for him. But of paramount importance was this man's soul, the condition of his soul. And Jesus speaks a word of forgiveness into his heart. Now, this would have been especially meaningful to this man in that culture where they had erroneously believed that things like paralysis were always the cause of either your sin or the sin of your parents. And, of course, we all have a parent in Adam who sinned, who caused all of us to experience such things like sickness and disease and and famine and the like. And, of course, there are physical infirmities that are a direct result of our own sin. A sexually transmitted disease perhaps could be received because of our own sinful action. But... In this man's case, although we don't know, it appears that he probably was not paralyzed because of any particular sin he had committed, but maybe growing up in that culture, hearing that he was a sinner because he was paralyzed, it would have brought life to his bones to hear Jesus tell him that his sins were forgiven. Now, verse 3, there was a response. It says, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. In the other Gospels, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that statement was accurate from the scribes and the Pharisees. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and I believe here we have a moment where Jesus is receiving a word of knowledge. He knows something that in his incarnated body, and as he had set aside his glory, this is something that the Father himself is revealing to the Son. And so he knows their thoughts and said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. 
Now, of course, Jesus has set all this up quite nicely and perfectly. He forgives a man of his sins. The scribes argue within their hearts. Jesus says, hey, what's easier to say? Rise, take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven you. In other words, it's easier to say, probably in in one sense, your sins are forgiven you because nobody really knows whether it's been effective or not. But to say, take up your bed and walk, the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. And so Jesus is consenting to them. Hey, I, I understand. You have your doubts that I've just forgiven this man of his sin. Well, how about this? And he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home, verse 7. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And of course, what we have here is Jesus validating his claim to be able to forgive sin, which in turn was a claim to deity itself because only God can forgive sin by healing the man of his paralysis. Surely God would not bless the work or the words of a man who claimed ability to forgive sin, but had no such ability, certainly God would not then follow up and stand beside a blaspheming man by then allowing him to be an instrument of healing for a man with paralysis. And so Jesus worked a wonderful thing and the people glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now in our next story, we see Jesus calling. This is in verse 9, that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So here we have an autobiographical account here from our author of the Gospel of Matthew about his moment where he left and forsook everything, and followed after Christ. And what it tells us here is that Matthew had a previous profession. Now, many of the disciples had the profession of fishermen. Uh, Perhaps seven of the 12 had been fishermen in their previous employment. But here, Matthew was a tax collector. And tax collectors in that day and age were seen as traitors. Basically, men who extorted their salary from other people. Uh, They would collect taxes for Rome. He was a Jew, and so he was seen as a traitor by the Jewish people. And in order to receive his salary, he would have to charge taxes above and beyond what Rome expected to receive in order to pay for his own salary. So a bit of a sellout in Israel. And not only that, But this was a dishonest profession. He had to lie and steal and cheat in order to make a living in that profession. And so in one sense, what we have with Matthew is a man who, like many in our modern era, when he begins to follow Christ, he could never go back to the life that he had previously lived. And for many people, uh, when they come to Christ, they're able to keep their previous employment and profession. 
you know, you're a plumber, you're a coach, you're an accountant, you can keep your previous profession. However, the way that you do your profession may need to change. Perhaps you were a teacher who previously championed the cause of evolution or something like that. You need to change the way that you teach and communicate in a different way. Uh, Perhaps you were an accountant who cut corners and who was willing to lie for your customers, so to speak, and you are required now to change your practices. And in some cases, that might mean that you then lose the profession that you previously had. But for Matthew, he could never go back to that environment. And I love the line. It says that he rose and followed him. He was willing to go. And as Jesus reclined at table, verse 10, in the house. So this is Matthew's house. Matthew is now throwing a feast for Jesus. It says, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And so quite the scene. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is something that bothered the Pharisees greatly. They saw Jesus. They saw his comfort level with people who were obviously living and stuck in a life of sin. And they were baffled as to how he could interact with them in the slightest. Now, What Jesus wasn't doing, of course, was condoning a sinful lifestyle. This is the mistake many people make. The long-suffering of God, they interpret it to mean that he condones a life of sin. It's not that at all. Jesus is not condoning the tax collector lifestyle or the life of sin or prostitution or any such thing. But he is longing in his heart to reach a people who are in need of a Savior. And so Jesus responds in verse 12. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quoting from Hosea chapter 6. And he says, Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when Jesus says this, of course, he isn't saying, hey, Pharisees, I don't need to go to you because, well, you're already righteous. No, he's rebuking them for their self-righteousness. And what he's saying here is, I'm going to spend my time with people who might have a sense of need. They understand that they have a need for God. And I'm not going to spend my time ministering to the self-righteous that are in this world who feel that they don't need any mercy, who feel they don't need the grace of God whatsoever. And I think that we should take a second look at what Jesus is saying and and what he was practicing, because I, I think one of the mistakes that we sometimes make in looking at this moment where Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners is that what we take from it is look at how Jesus spent time with the motliest of crews, so to speak. And so we think that's what we should do. We should find the 
grungiest, you know, most rebellious crowd and spend time with them. But I think there's a heart behind the external of every kind of person. And in that culture, what you were outwardly, the Pharisees, it was very obvious what was going on internally. But I found in our modern culture that you can have someone that appears maybe like they would fall into the tax collector and sinner camp. But then when you begin to talk to them, you realize that they have a Pharisee heart. And then there may be those who seem like they've got it all together like the Pharisees, but then you begin to speak with them and you understand that they understand that they have a need for God. And so a willingness to go to those who realize that they have a need of a physician. Now in verse 14, Jesus continued on and he said, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So first the Pharisees came and questioned Jesus' disciples. But now the disciples of John come. And they asked Jesus, you know, listen, the Pharisees fast. We are fasting. Why is it that your disciples aren't going through this religious rite of or this practice of fasting? You know, misery loves company. Why are they allowed to eat while we're abstaining from food? And Jesus said to them in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Think of that picture. There you are at a wedding. There's the bridegroom. And while the bridegroom is there, of course the wedding guests aren't going to to mourn. That's a time of feasting. Jesus said the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And Jesus would die. He would ascend. And then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And so here Jesus says two fascinating things. First of all, on the subject of fasting, He says, don't worry, disciples of John, the day is coming where my disciples will fast. Just like you, they will fast. I'm with them right now. One day I'll be taken away from them and they will give themselves to fasting. And of course, we see this in the book of Acts. There were times where they waited upon the Lord, served the Lord with prayer and fasting. Times that they would abstain from eating food. And of course, nowadays we've added different things, abstinence from a time, from media. There is even in 1 Corinthians 7, the mention of a married couple fasting from sexual relationship for a period of time to seek the Lord. And so you can fast or abstain from many different things. But of course, the most common biblical fast is abstaining from food. And as you abstain from food for a set period of time, whether it's a day or three days or a week or couple of weeks, as you abstain from food and as you drink water and as your body becomes weaker and weaker and as you experience that full dependence upon God to just get you through the day, as you fast, there's a physical weakness that comes, but a spiritual strength that comes as well. Usually not during the fast, but after the fast has been completed. And so Jesus says, don't worry, that day is coming. But then he kind of concludes this little 
patch of being questioned by the Pharisees and the disciples of John by talking about new wine and a new piece of untrunk cloth. And he says, listen, the untrunk cloth can't go on an old garment because when it shrinks, it will tear the old garment. And new wine, which is going to expand, can't go into an old wineskin, which is inflexible. It has to go into a new wineskin and they're both are preserved. And I think he's explaining to these men why he was pouring himself out into, so to speak, the new wine of Christ into these disciples and doing things in a brand new way. And of course, I think in every age or cycle of a church, it is good to have fresh new wineskins that are able to receive in a fresh way from the Lord. Now, verse 18, it says that while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came. Now, the other Gospels tell us that this is a ruler of the local synagogue, a man named Jairus. And he knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. This is great faith from Jairus. He believed that if you come and touch her, she'll live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And so on his way to Jairus's house, there's this woman. She's had this flow of blood for 12 years. The other gospels tell us that Jairus's daughter who had died was 12 years of age. So you have in one sense this in this story, 12 years of uncleanness from the woman with the flow of blood. She's ceremonially unclean because of this, a bit of an outcast in that culture. And then you have this little girl, 12 years of, we can only assume at least, relative peace. And Jesus here comes and answers the prayers of both. And this woman believes, notice again, the theme of faith. She believes in her heart, if I just touch the hem of his garment, power will be released from him and I will be healed. Notice the flexibility of Christ. He goes to Jairus' house to touch his little girl. He doesn't argue with him and say, hey, I could just speak a word and she could be made well. He doesn't argue with this woman and her belief that if she touches the hem of his garment, what it's about is faith and trust in him. And so this woman is made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And so he gets to Jairus's house, and there are these people, probably paid mourners, who are there playing music and making a commotion, sort of announcing to the neighborhood that a tragedy has occurred inside of the home. And Jesus says, you know, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And he goes and he resurrects her. He raises her from 
the dead. Now, of course, this is a resuscitation. It's different than the resurrection that Jesus would accomplish. That's why we say of him that he's the firstborn from the dead. And so the first to experience that real resurrection life. And so this little girl raised, and of course, she's the first of the three that Jesus would raise from the dead. She was freshly dead. Jesus would also raise a young man who was on his way to be buried, actually in a funeral procession, the widow of Nain's son. And then also he would raise Lazarus, who had actually been buried for a few days. He would also raise Lazarus, a grown man who was very dead, from the grave as well. And so the absolute power of Christ over death. And this is speaking about his kingdom in the future sense. He will raise us from the grave. And verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and said to him, Do you, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Notice again the action of faith. And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. It was very inconvenient for Jesus to be popular at this time because thousands of followers meant thousands of responsibilities and it was not very easy for him to move from place to place. So he asked these men, please don't tell anybody that I've opened your eyes, but they went and announced it to everyone. But again, the role of faith in the life of these men. Now, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, this was their explanation, He casts out demons by the prince of demons, something the other gospels expound on further. And Jesus, verse 35, went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Notice the heart of Christ. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There are many wonderful biblical prayers to pray, but one of them is found right here. Praying for God to raise up laborers to go out into the harvest. There are is always more to be done in reaping a harvest of souls than there are people to do the harvesting. And so Jesus says, pray, 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 pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And many times as we pray that prayer, we are a part of that solution. And so in this chapter, we see the absolute power of Christ. As people express and place their faith in him, we see healings. We see demons cast out. We see the blind receiving sight. We see the dead raised. And what we're getting is a glimpse, a glimpse of the coming kingdom of Christ. 
where sickness and disease and the demons and death will be vanquished once and for all. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.